Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I'm your host, Nick Barksdale. But today, we have a very special episode with a very special guest. When I announced that I wanted to do a study on Minoan origins, DNA, I got an email that shocked me and I was super excited because a doctor had messaged me said he knew I wanted to do an episode on it, but he wanted to make sure we did it correctly. And I was thrilled. There's a lot of misinformation surrounding these results and they can easily get misconstrued. And so I told him since he opened the door, he contacted me. I had to have him on my show. Who better to do it than an expert themselves? And so ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Dr. Peter Revez. Dr. Revez, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Nick. And Dr. Revez, for our audience today who may not be familiar with your work, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? I was born in communist Hungary in 1965 and came to the United States with my parents when I was 15. I lived in Kentucky attended Tulane for my bachelor's and got a PhD from Brown University in 1991. I'm currently a professor of computer science at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. My specialties are data science, bioinformatics, and computational linguistics. Since I was a Fulbright scholar, at the University of Athens in 2008, I used my expertise to study Minoan genetics and writing. When you hear the term Minoan civilization, based on your expertise, your research, and your imagination, what comes to your mind when you hear those two words? First, the palaces of Knossos and Festus, and the town of Akrotiri with beautiful frescoes. And I think many other people are attracted to these first. As a computational linguist, I'm also very interested in the linear A script that the Minoans used. Now, before we talk about the Minoan origins, let's talk history. What are some of the traditional views as to where the Minoans came from? The traditional view was that the Minoans came from the Near East. According to a legend, King Minos was the son of Europa, a Phoenician princess. In the last few decades, new theories were developed about Minoan origins. I just mentioned a few scholars and their proposals. Martin Bernal, Egypt, Nonno Marinatus, Near East, Harald Harman, Old European Civilization, Graham Campbell, Fulani from Libya, Hubert Lamar, Iran, just to name a few. As you can see, these earlier theories range all over the compass. 
And now when it comes to these traditional viewpoints, what are your thoughts on them? Do you consider certain ones to be more accurate than others? All of them have one common problem. They didn't distinguish between the early and middle Minoans. According to Arthur Evans, the early Minoans lived from 3000 to 2200 BC and the middle Minoans from 2200 to 1500 BC. My own research came to the conclusion that these early and middle Minoans were two different groups of people. And I based my research on the following. Ancient DNA, art motifs, vowel harmony analysis, script similarity, etymology, and decipherment of Minoan inscriptions. Now, what everyone's been waiting for, let's talk ancient DNA. What has ancient DNA told us about the ancient Minoans and where they've came from? That was a study in 2013 that considered mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited in a maternal line. A second study, which was published in Nature magazine in 2017, provided more complete ancient DNA and used the DNA admixture analysis study of Minoan origins. The admixture analysis that the Minoans came from the Near East. However, this study had some problems. What are some of the problems with the DNA admixture analysis? There are some problems with the DNA admixture analysis in the nature paper. I prepared a little slide, which I would like to share with you. So here is the main table from Lazaridis et al called Genetic Origins of the Minoans and Mycenaeans Nature Paper from 2017. In their supplementary table, they give some details about the admixture analysis that they used for Minoans from the Lassiti Plateau, that is from the Haralambos Cave. As you can see, there are three references. These are called ultimate sources in the nature paper. And these included a Paleolithic sam sample from Siberia, an example of the Mota group from Africa, a 15,000 years old Siberian example from Afontova Gora, and an Eastern European hunter-gatherer, abbreviated EHG. Now, when we go through all the genes found in the Minoans, then it can be tested whether those genes are closest to which of the three references. 
And then in the right hand side, we can see that the proportions are such that the highest proportion is always from the third group, which is the Anatolian Neolithic group, okay, which is another one. It is ranging from 80% all the way to 96.7%. Now the conclusion that the paper made is that therefore the Minoans came from Anatolia. The problem that I see with this analysis is that the ultimate sources of the paper did not include any samples from the old European Neolithic and its Bronze Age successors. The ultimate source is not necessarily the place where the Minoans came from in the Bronze Age. But this is, this is a criticism of the paper which had some limitations. And so how can this problem be avoided? How did your analysis avoid this problem? I have taken a look at all the mitochondrial DNA from the mitochondrial DNA database. And these are the haplogroups that were found from the Neolithic and the early Bronze Age. The yellow ones in Anatolia are haplogroups of very ancient origin from that region. The green ones are also from Anatolia and the Fertile Crescent, but they have moved to Central Europe, mostly the Danube Basin. While the blue ones are those which have a Mesolithic origin in Europe. The shaded gray part is a refinement of the haplogroup classification. And these indicate extra mutations that took place during the Neolithic and the early Bronze Age while they still lived in Europe. These mutations indicate extra levels of the haplogroups, for example, UA, U5A1F, the F is a mutation that doesn't occur earlier or outside of this region. And uh, similarly, H5A1G, the A1G indicates mutations that doesn't occur earlier. Now, the interesting thing is that the blue ones include the very important group of U5, which stems from the Mesolithic. And this U5 were found to be highest in proportion in the Sami, in Finland, among the Mordwins, the Mari, and in Estonia. These are all indicated uh, in blue, and these are all Finno-Ugric language-speaking areas. 
So this gives rise to the idea that the Finno-Greek group was, were there in the Mesolithic, and Grover Kranz had a theory which exactly said that in 1988, interestingly, long before archaeogenetic data became available. So this was very foresightful for him to say that Proto-Finno-Greek is a Mesolithic language that is from the Carpathian Basin, broader speaking, the Danube Basin. Now, to this we added uh, another hypothesis that in this region where the fertile crescent uh, origin uh, genes come from, bringing in the early Neolithic culture and agriculture, they mix together and they acquired also the Finno-Greek language, Proto-Finno-Greek language. And from this region, later they went north, east, and south. As you can see, all the way to Estonia, in the north, and then Finland, and down to Crete. Haplogroups that are shown here on this map can be all found in the Haralambos cave in Middle Minoan times. Yes, but the things here in the circled region, they are from an earlier period than the Haralambos cave samples from Crete. And what does your analysis of the ancient DNA actually tell us about the Minoan origins? It tells us that the Minoans, at least the Middle Minoans, came from the Danube Basin at the beginning of the Bronze Age. In the circled region that I showed you, the mutations appear earlier than the age of the Minoan samples. So this is the only logical conclusion. And now I want to talk about art motifs. When it comes to Minoan art, what motifs are the most interesting for you? I like among the, all the art motifs, the water motif and the well motif. And these can be explained best by looking at some pictures, which I also would like to share with you. Here's the first motif I would like to share with you, and this is the water motif. It has been inspired by creeks like this. The bowl is from um, Iran from 4000 BC. It can be found also in other cultures, including in Butmir, a Neolithic culture, in the Cordidware culture, in early Minoan Crete from Knossos, and even in present-day Hungary in Page. This motif was simplified, and I show here a variation where the dots within a triangle were simplified to just a simple dot. This appears in the Najrev culture, 
Bronze Age culture from uh, Hungary in the Knossos. This uh, uh, ladies motif has the dress water motif and even in Conti art, Conti is a Finno-Greek group of people today living in Siberia. And it's very interesting to see the blue color. Another motif that I would like to share with you has an interesting story. Many of you know the Sami people who live in Northern Finland. They are also a Finno-Ugric language group people and only a few tens of thousands of people are left. When I was visiting the University of Helsinki in the fall of 2019, I had an opportunity to encounter Sami art. And then something really surprising happened. Before that, as part of my work on art motifs of the Minoans, I have identified another art motif called the well motif. And let me share another slide about that. The well motif is shown here from the Nojrev culture, from the Minoan culture, and the Sami culture. In all of these, the, the water motif developed further by going around a rectangle. And in the middle, there is also a diagonal staircase-like structure in both the Najrev and the Minoan culture. And you can see in the Sami knife, the same thing happens. You can see even the little dots here all around the carved knife handle. When I saw this, I was so shocked. I didn't expect this. This was an accidental discovery, but nicely fits into the theory that there was an ancient group of people who spread from the Danube Basin, both north all the way to the north of Finland, where the Sami live today, down to the island of Crete in Minoan times. The, these motifs are so special and so related that this couldn't be accidental. And we know also that this is a well motif because we have the water motif built into this. And in all three examples, we have animals drinking from the well or being around. There are many other motifs that I considered. If people are interested in this subject, they can check out one of my YouTube videos specialized on art motifs. One of the things that I would like to call attention to is that this supports the earlier theory that we developed based on genetics, namely a difference between the early Minoans who have an early version of the water motif and the middle Minoans who also share 
the well motif. The well motif is not present in Neolithic Anatolia or the Fertile Crescent. And though you've already touched on it, for our viewers who may not have caught it earlier, when it comes to your experience with these art motifs, in your opinion, what does it tell you about the origins of the Minoans? The art motif analysis beautifully supports the genetic analysis. The genetic analysis concluded that the early Minoans and the middle Minoans are two separate people. In the art motifs, we have seen that the oldest version of the water motif comes from the Near East, the Fertile Crescent and Anatolia. However, it has developed further and only the middle Minoans share the well motif. This development of the well motif occurred sometime in the Danube Basin and was carried, as we have seen, all the way north to the Sami as well as all the way south to Crete in the middle Minoan period. And now we're approaching an interesting subject, and that is script and vow harmony. And for those of you that wonder, how does this connect to what we're talking about? Don't worry, because Dr. Revez is going to walk us through it. And now let's talk about the linear A script. Firstly, what is it? The linear A script appears on the island of Crete around 1700 BC, already fully formed. It had to come from somewhere. It cannot come from Mesopotamia, where cuneiform was used, or from Egypt, where Egyptian hieroglyphs were used. The logical place of origin is the old European culture, which had a writing, and in fact, according to some archaeologists, it, it had the oldest writing. Moreover, some of the signs are very linear in form, just like we see in the linear A script, which is called linear because a lot of lines are used to compose the various signs. The linear A script preceded the linear B script, which was solved in 1952 by Michael Ventris as an archaic form of Greek. But this linear B was only used in a later time, which is, which is called the late Minuan period. And so now I have to ask, when it comes to linear A script and translating it, why is it so hard to decipher? Decipherment is easier if we know the type of language in the script. Famously, Champollion's decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphs was held by his guess that ancient Egyptian was related to the Coptic language. 
in order to guess the language of linear A, we have to know where the minoans came from. And so that leads me to ask now, what is your approach to deciphering the linear A script? Of course, I use genetics to identify the origin of the minoans. In addition, I also used a vowel harmony testing algorithm to identify the type of language in which the minoans wrote. And for our audience today who may not know, would you define vowel harmony? I again would like to share some slides on this subject. There are two classes of vowels, the front vowels, and these are the E, 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 and the back vowels, U, O, O, A. The front-back vowel harmony in words mean that in the root words, we only use front vowels or back vowels. This happens for the words describing cloud and leg in these sample languages, Finnish, Hungarian, and Turkish. The question is whether the script of linear A and the other Minoan scripts, the Festus disk and Cretan hieroglyphs, also have vowel harmony. Vowel harmony testing is useful to identify the possible language family of the Minoan language, because this characteristic or feature runs in language families. Some of the language families which share this feature are Finno-Greek languages, Korean, Mongolian, Nilo-Saharan, Tungusic, Turkic, and so on, as you can see on this map. So we have taken the fastest disk because this is the longest inscription from Minoan period. And this indicates very nicely in blocks the structure of the sentences. Each block may be a word or maybe a short phrase. When we analyze this script, which was described by Arthur Evans also, and numbered from the center to the outside, indicating a center to the outside reading, then <clears throat> we can look for those words which are repeated frequently. These are sequences of signs and probably they are root words. I have indicated here in the middle some of the possible roots because these are occurring at least twice. Before that could be a prefix, and after that a suffix. And this could be additions for the sake of grammar. 
in these languages which has have uh, vowel harmony, often you have many suffix and prefix. This. Here are a few more examples of the same analysis. And now comes an interesting fact. When I looked at how the root words are composed into signs, and these signs can be assumed to be um, having some phonetic value, which is a composite of a consonant and vowel. And uh, this is similar to other Bronze Age scripts, including the linear B that I mentioned, and also Sumerian cuneiforms and Cypriot syllabary, which we already know. So in the Bronze Age, syllable, syllables uh, were denoted by the signs, and we can assume that most of them are consonant and a single vowel, occasionally a consonant, a single vowel and a consonant would also occur, or a vowel in itself. But in either way, we have only one vowel, and that's important. So when we are applying this algorithm, which I don't need to go into all the details. I just say that this algorithm is designed to reveal the internal structure of the script by creating a visualization called a syllable adjacency graph. And the intuition here is that each node will be one of the signs and an edge occurs between two signs if and only if those two signs occur simultaneously within a root word. When we do the structural analysis, then we see that there are two main components, a blue and a red one, and a few pairs that seem to be isolates. This structure indicates a very strong tendency to separate the signs into two groups and probably those which are now in white color, they could join if we had more example words, either the blue or the red component of this graph, okay? So the Structure shown here is very typical of those languages which have vowel harmony, where one of the groups, let's say the blue, maybe the back vowel syllables, and the red may be the front vowel syllables. And this indicates a separation. So this language, the underlying language in the fastest disk has to have vowel harmony. I made similar analysis for linear A, and it also tends to have a vowel harmony. Now, this is very interesting result, and in some sense, we have done a cross-language family analysis. So all languages are considered in this study 
all over the world, but we now have to narrow further searches to language families where vowel harmony of the root words, at least, is a feature. And as we discuss vowel harmony, what you've learned from it and what you've seen, what conclusions can be drawn based on your findings? So the vowel harmony testing algorithm showed us that we have to search for language which has vowel harmony. In the area of the Mediterranean and nearby regions, there were very few language families which used vowel harmony. For example, vowel harmony is not a feature of Indo-European languages, and it's not a feature of Afro-Asiatic languages. Therefore, these two language families, which were often tried as the basis of the Minoan scripts, have to be eliminated from consideration. We have seen also the Turkic language family, and of course, uh, Turkey um, was not um, there in the Neolithic and early Bronze Age. It is a later development in the Mediterranean and also uh, would need to be excluded in the study. Uh, the Finno-Greek language family, which shares this feature actually, and is now um, revealed to have a Danube-Basin origin, that is really a serious uh, player in this consideration. And it would agree, again, very beautifully with the genetic study and the art motif study. There are other languages which are very interesting and uh, ancient in the area. Some of the Caucasian languages like Georgian or Proto-Georgian, which was also tried for the Festus disc, but Proto-Georgian, uh, the Kartvelian group does not have vowel harmony either. Sumerian has only limited vowel harmony and Basque language, which forms its own language group, very interesting language, also has been tried, but doesn't have vowel harmony. So on my opinion, it also has to be eliminated from further consideration. This is the implication of all of these results so far. And now we approach a subject called script similarity. When you talk about script similarity, what do you mean? By script similarity, we mean that the signs in two alphabets or syllabaries tend to be similar. In particular, they can be matched up and can see, be seen to be cognate or derived from the same ancestry. A good example of this, which even the ancient Greeks themselves knew, is the Phoenician alphabet, which was adapted in the classical Greek uh, period. And uh, we know that the Greek 
alphabet derives from that and many of the other alphabets in the world, the Latin and so on. Now, the interesting thing is that I have worked on script similarity analysis based on computer science techniques and uh, visual similarity allowed me to bring together into one group uh, a set of scripts called the Cretan script family. In one of your papers, you talk about the Cretan script family. Would you explain what that is and what it means? Cretan script family is a set of scripts that includes linear A, linear B, the Cretan hieroglyphic script, also the Tifinagh script, which is uh, all early um, writing of the uh, Berbers in uh, North Africa. And uh, it includes other scripts, such as the Carian alphabet and the old Hungarian alphabet. Do similar signs have similar phonetic values? That's a very interesting question, which is hard to answer. Sometimes the similarity, visual similarity, is accompanied by phonetic similarities. The um, Phoenician alphabet and the ancient Greek alphabet are both similar visually and in pronunciation, phonetic. However, this is not always the case. If the writing has very uh, small pictures as the signs, and these pictures have a very clear meaning for those people who write them, then such a script, pictographic script, could be adopted by another language group from an earlier language group, and the pronunciation would change because both groups pronounce the pictures differently, and the beginning letter or the beginning syllable will be different in the two groups. I believe this happened with the adoption of linear A signs into linear B. The phonetic values changed in many of the cases, although not in all cases, because in the Greek language, the pronunciation of those uh, words that were depicted in the pictures were different from the pronunciation in the Minoan language. And so with that being explained, can you give us an example of signs like this whose phonetic value didn't change and remained the same. Yes, there are several signs that I believe phonetic value remained. And here is a sign for a fig tree. 
this has a syllabic value of ni because ni is the beginning syllable for figs in ancient Greek borrowed from the Minoan language. So this probably was native plant in the Aegean area. And if people came from the north, they could just adapt it and uh, without any change, both the name of the fig and the sign. And so how does script similarity help in deciphering linear script A? Script similarity um, can allow us a decipherment because if we know the phonetic values of one script and we can match its signs with linear A signs, then we can have a possibility to reconstruct the linear A phonetic values as something similar to the other alphabet. Now, as I have said, this has been tried by linear B, which of course visually is very close, but comes uh, from a different language group. And so it doesn't seem to work for this reason. Another uh, script which I tried is the Carrion alphabet. The Carrion alphabet is attested from around 800 BC to around 100 BC. And it's found in many places in Western uh, Turkey, present day Turkey, but also in Egypt and other places where the Carrions lived. They were also supposedly, uh, according to Herodotus and other writers, uh, living in other uh, places in the Aegean, in the islands, and maybe even on the island of Crete. So studying the Carrion alphabet is a very important help in deciphering the script. Now, for many years, the Carrion alphabet's phonetic values were also not known. They were solved only in the past 15 years. Visually, often they look similar to Greek letters, but the phonetic values are very different. They come from an earlier tradition, and I think the gap between the disappearance of linear A and Karian's uh, alphabet's appearance, attested appearance, uh, is small enough that we can uh, presume a continuity. Otherwise, it would be a complete mystery where the Karian alphabet came from and why it has the values it has. Now let me share with you a table which will compare the linear A signs with the Karian alphabet letters. In a journal paper from 2017, I have identified certain features by which I compare the various signs. 
these features are simple things such as feature number one, the symbol contains some curved line. Number two, it encloses some region. Number three, it has some slanted straight line. Number four, it contains parallel lines and so on. Anybody who's interested can look up this on my web page. Using these features, it's possible to analyze any set of linear signs. In table one shown here, we analyze a set of linear A signs. This is in each column, the black indicates the absence and the red indicates the presence of a certain feature. So for this sign in the left, this indicates that there is no curved line. The second row is red. It indicates it has some enclosed space. And the third one indicates it has some slanted line. The fourth one indicates it has no parallel lines and so on. So as you can see, each of the sign I analyze in terms of the certain features. The same I apply to the Korean alphabet letters as shown here. The Korean alphabet shown on the top also has or doesn't have these certain features. By the way, it's possible to extend these features further to a larger set. But these 13 seem to be very basic concepts that occur in topology and they are always coming up in other types of analysis of symbols and uh, pictures. So these are natural to choose. Now, once we have a feature description, a feature vector, then it's possible to compare in a matrix form to scripts. This table here is a comparison of linear A signs shown in the rows with the Korean alphabet letters shown in the columns. Furthermore, the order is arranged so that the highest values are always along the main diagonal. The highest value is of course 13 in our analysis and this seems to be achieved in most cases. In a few cases, we have values of 12. Now, this means a nice matching between Korean alphabet letters and linear A symbols. And we can presume this to be not an accident. 
if the two were completely unrelated, then we would have a more irregular matrix where 13 would not appear always between one pair, but would appear more randomly all over. Now we go to the next step, which is uh, how do we use this? We have an expectation that the linear A signs um, stand for syllables. Linear B was also solved as a syllabary. And we also can uh, assume a natural development of scripts from the syllabic stage of writing to the alphabetic stage of writing, where a consonant vowel pair of syllable was simplified over time to be a single consonant. And so when we have Let's say we have a consonant in the carrion alphabet. For example, we have this uh, G, a G sound. We can assume that this sign here, which is very close to that, will also start with the same consonant and will contain some vowel as well. Similarly, uh, if you have an N here, this sign is an N, and this is similar to this sign here, this may start with an N as well, okay? And this could be ni or na or ne or nu, okay? So this is how the script similarity can be used in an attempt to reconstruct the linear A phonetic values. And so let's talk etymology. How does etymology contribute to the decipherment of linear A? Etymology is very important because 4,000 years ago, when most of the writing uh, was written down, there were no modern languages. We had some ancient archaic or proto-form languages only. And etymological dictionaries are very good in telling us which words could have been there and in what form. In particular, for Finno-Greek languages, there were many proto-forms reconstructed by linguists. And for Indo-European languages, similarly, there were very good reconstructions of Proto-Indo-European words. Now, when we would like to understand how picture expressed in linear A uh, could have been pronounced, its meaning, of the picture be an object like a bird or an action like walking, 
we have to look at the protoforms and this can help us to guess what were the syllables which started these protowords. And these syllables can be assumed to be the value, phonetic value of the linear A signs. Now we do it very carefully. So as I said, you have the N beginning already established using the carrion alphabet. And then you are just looking for the vowel. Therefore, you are not looking for all over the words, over all possible proto-words, but only those proto-words which start with N. And then you can find a few which could possibly play a consideration. This I call the controlled acrophonic principle. The controlled acrophonic principle is very narrow and usually only a few words can be considered instead of all the possible words that come to mind when we see an object. So the acrophonic principle in itself has led to many misleading and wrong translations. But the controlled acrophonic principle that I use is so careful, I think, that I have, I believe, good translations of some of the linear A inscriptions. So here is a table I made. This is a syllabary uh, grid where the rows show the consonants and the columns show the vowels. And the sign that we considered is shown here. This was matched with the Carian letter for N. It's a, a softened or palatized version is Eng. There happens to be a Finno-Greek, in particular Hungarian word, which starts with this, but this is a Finno-Greek origin. So this is Niel. I would say this is the N-E or Niel-E, or pronounced E as a matter of fact, okay? And so uh, everywhere in this table, we can see a reconstruction of the values. Another thing that I can say is, let's look at this uh, symbol here. This linear A symbol looks like a bird turning its neck backward. In this case, this could be found to be similar to the Cypriot syllabary sign for L. E. And interestingly enough, there's a name for goose in Finnish, another Finno-Greek language, which is Lintu. And Lintu is very close to the Proto-Finno-Greek reconstructed work for goose. So we can be pretty sure about L-E, syllabic value, for this linear A sign. And similarly, everywhere else 
we do the reconstruction. Now, our reconstructions are not going to be perfect. However, if we achieve a 90 or close to 90% accuracy, then it already allows some translations of perhaps the easier inscriptions. And so as we approach translations, can you give us an example of one of your Linear A translations? It is a pleasure to give you some examples, of course. I have 28 uh, translations published in a journal paper in 2017. And I have, in addition, published in other journal articles, translations of some Cretan hieroglyphic inscriptions and also a translation of the fastest disk. I'm going to give you an example, which is my favorite. And this is an inscription that is found on a golden ring near Knossos. So I would like to share with you just one example of linear A translations that I have been working on. This example is a beautiful gold ring that comes from Mavrospilio near Knossos, and it is inscribed with the linear A script. Around 1600, to 1500 BC. Now this is read from the outside to the center. And I have put the standardized linear A signs in this row, highlighted in blue. Below that, I put the syllabic values that come from the table I've shown before. As you can see, the second sign has the value NE, NE, as we have discussed. In the third row, I will have the likely Minoan phonetics. Just like in linear A, some of the vowels may drop out. And this is a slight simplification from the earlier row. In fact, um, for example, the N before K can be omitted in the writing. It's implicitly there but it's kind of a glide sound. It's not always indicated even in linear B. So that's why we have another row here for the Minoan phonetics as we can reconstruct. Now, um, I choose among uh, Finno-Greek languages, a number of them, but Hungarian I often uh, look up it uh, has similar words to the phonetics of the Minoans, as can be seen. And as I said, I look for words that have 
Finno-Ugric origin. So in some words, many of these can be also found in, let's say, the Finnish language, Estonian, Mari, Mordvin, or other Finno-Ugric languages. Fein, which is uh, Fene, is um, meaning light, such as uh, uh, sunlight, okay. And Shelag, um, Chilog, it's gleaming, okay, which is appropriate for stars. And uh, uh, Lu can be an archaic form of Le. This appears in um, as, uh, some Finno-Greek languages as a meaning down or downward. Uh, rank, this means uh, onto. And then uh, uh, the serial is close to serial. The SZ is just Hungarian uh, version of S. It's not uh, uh, pronounced differently. And feke, T is, just means uh, fake talon. Fake is another uh, ancient word which has um, cognates in uh, Finno-Greek languages such as Hanti and Manshi. These are today living in Western Siberia, just across the Ural mountain. So when I put all of this together, this is what I find. The root words are indicated in red. The conjugations, the suffixes are indicated in blue. And the text which is emerging in an English translation is the following. Sun shine and stars gleam down onto us love without break. So it's, this is some kind of uh, motto, maybe for lovers. I don't know how the gold ring may have been uh, used. It may have been a, a gift, just like in today's age for a new couple. Okay, I don't know. But this is the text that is emerging here. And you can see that the root words and the conjugations both are meaningful and they together give the meaning, which is the translation. It's very important when we do translations to achieve a consistency. When we have a single inscription, it's possible to translate it because we have a lot of freedom in how we assign the phonetic value to each sign. And if we try hard for a short inscription, we will succeed to have a meaning. What is interesting, and it is an indication that we are on the right track, is that we have, we have 40 translations as of now which is consistent and uh, um, all based on ancient words, cognate with ancient words, almost every word. And 
some of the grammar is also very clearly uh, the same. The translation, of course, is continuing because there are 1,500, uh, 1,500 linear A inscriptions on various objects. Some of them are clay tablets and uh, carvings into stone. Um, and also we have uh, about 400 uh, Cretan hieroglyphic scripts. And uh, so there's a lot of work to do, but I, I believe we have uh, a fairly consistent translation and uh, we have improved a little bit the syllabic grid I have talked about. So there were some small improvements that we had to make uh, to get uh, better uh, translation, meaningful translations, but we are in the right track. That's what I try to say and let everyone know who is listening today. And Dr. Revez, given what you've done, what you've researched, what is the general acceptance or objections to your work? One of the objections is stemming from the idea that the Finno-Ugric homeland was near the Ural mountains. And the Finno-Ugric people lived around that area until a few centuries after uh, BC. And Actually, now it turns out that the homeland of the Finno-Ugric people were near the Danube Delta in the Danube Basin, and many of the groups migrated north from there and east. If we place the uh, Proto-Finno-Ugric homeland in the Danube Basin, then we can imagine very easily that they could know how to sail ships and come from the Black Sea into the Aegean Sea. So this would be a settling of this concern. And of course, I understand that for 120 years, people looked for a language in the Mediterranean area very often people don't know uh, geography and don't realize how easy it is to get from the Black Sea through the Bosporus Strait into the Aegean. It's actually easier and a shorter route than coming from the Near East. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. Okay, because this doesn't go into too much detail about Hungarian history, which is, which is um, debated, yeah, controversial yeah. a little bit. So I can tell you just offline that there are groups which say that the Hungarians came at the end of the ninth century into the present area where they live. There's another group which says that the Hungarians are natives to the area, the Carpathian Basin, Danube Basin. 
And uh, uh, these two groups are debating. And uh, there's also a third group, which is uh, now gaining somehow political power. I don't know why, but it's gaining political power, which says that the Hungarians are actually descendants of the Huns. And uh, this is a little bit simplistic. People have been uh, confusing the Huns who also lived in that area in the fourth century with the Hungarians. And the names are similar, so I understand the confusion. Also, the, uh, some archaeogenetic uh, uh, studies indicate that the royal dynasty, the so-called house of Arpad, the Arpad dynasty, who has established a very strong feudalistic kingdom, is of Han origin. Chroniclers said that in the Middle Ages, and now archaeogenetics supports it. Some nearest relative in the Y chromosome uh, branch seems to be found in Mongolia. The problem is that in Mongolia, nobody, nobody ever imagined to be uh, a Finno-Greek homeland. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's out of question. And the language is Finno-Greek. You cannot overturn this thing, although some people try. And uh, uh, the simple solution in my mind is that the uh, dynasties have nothing to do with the people. The dynasty and the ruling class, the nobles established themselves after the conquest, but some conquest occurred. Similar to, I would say, and you know his story very well, William the Conqueror. Yeah. William the Conqueror came to England, established a very strong feudalistic kingdom. Before that, there were many fighting uh, smaller kings, kingdoms, okay. And uh, William the Conqueror has really made England great, okay, in the sense of setting it in a, in a path of great power, okay. And so in England, you know, he's respected and, you know, part of British history, okay. Nobody thinks about him as somehow an outsider anymore, okay. And many of the knights he brought with him became the early nobility in England. So something similar happened. But the language didn't change. The language was English and remained English, a Germanic language in uh, all classifications. And many of the Latin, French words that came into the language, just addition of words and not a basic change in the overall structure. And uh, I see this similar thing happening in uh, Hungarian language too. So you can have some uh, foreign words, including some of Han origin, although we don't know the language too well, some Turkish origin. Uh, it's attested. We have Turkish origin words, a good few hundred of them, definitely. And, uh, and yet the language is Finno-Ugric, so they had to be in that area. And the U5 is 
the almost completely dominant U5 haplogroup is the dominant haplogroup in the Mesolithic, and it's always in high proportion in the Finnogri groups compared to their neighbors. So that's the logical conclusion that it was the original uh, uh, homeland in the in the Mesolithic, and this language comes from that. And uh, the Indo-European languages came uh, later in the uh, Bronze Age, and uh, the theory of Maria's Gimbutas is uh, very important. In fact, I should have mentioned Maria Gimbutas somewhere in the last uh, thing. Okay, so. Let me, let me add a couple of sentences which Maria Gimbutas' work is mentioned because I think okay. she's very important. May I? But, yeah, but I, I think I'm not, not uh, uh, saying, saying too much which bores you, but it's I'll interesting. Try to, I'll try right? to make it work. I will say here in a couple minutes, I am probably going to have to go just so I can get ready for work. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. okay. All right, so let, let me say a couple of sentences, okay? Uh, but you can put it before or after the paragraph, okay? So, um, according to Maria Gimbutas, there was an old European civilization which had a very high culture and this may be associated with the Finno-Greek language also. This is all European culture is where the Minoans descend from, came from, and uh, it had writing, some of the earliest writing, as I mentioned. The newcomers from Anatolia and the Fertile Crescent who came to the Danube Basin, according to my um, theory, acquired the Finno-Greek language after mixing with the local population. That's how you can uh, imagine things to have happened. Of course, uh, this hypothesis is uh, just a hypothesis, but in many cases it occurred that the incomers acquired the local language. This happened uh, uh, many times in history. And uh, an example of this is William the Conqueror who came to England. The result of this uh, conquest was, of course, the establishment of a strong feudal kingdom in England and the language remained English with many French origin words added. So similarly, I can imagine uh, the interaction between the older hunter-gatherer groups and the newcomer Neolithic groups in the Danube Basin. And so we are looking for a solution to the Minoan language, which comes from that region and that language family group. Thank you. And this part right here that you just said, 
in our interview, where do you want this to go? Where do you want me to put this part? Uh, I think that it fits best, but I, I don't know where it fits best. Let I leave it up to you. I think the okay. towards the end is good, but uh, at some point I mentioned uh, the genetics, whatever. Okay. You, it's yeah. your, you can you can choose that. Okay? I'm gonna make that work. Um, I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna have to run to get ready okay. for work. All work. right. If you um, need any, anything, have any questions, please let me know. I'd be glad yeah, yeah. to answer. <clears throat> if you want another meeting, I I can set up some other meeting. Oh yeah, no, I would definitely, I definitely like to have you on as a repeat guest. I think we should do some. I think we could do some interesting episodes. Um, let me uh, add your. Do what? But we can go into more detail about some of this topic. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, whenever you have time, I'll probably try to have this episode up and ready within two weeks, within two weeks, if not sooner. Um, Cause I've got to do six more interviews this week for the channel. So let's uh, whenever you have time, send me a list of links that you would like me to put in the video description, like your YouTube channel, stuff like that. I'm going to make sure that when I upload this, I put everything in there. That way they can find all of your stuff more easy. And so, uh, yeah, this is going to be good. Um, like uh, I said, it was a pleasure. I hope, hope you can do it within one week. I don't want to rush you, but I hope uh, okay. you can do it within one week, not wait too long. So what about... Uh, I've got a... Yeah, I've got an episode that has to go up this Saturday. So what about the Saturday after this one? So let's say. Okay. Uh, if you want another meeting, but if you, if you, well, you have your own schedule. I just wish yeah. it could get be done earlier rather than later. On my part, right. I will send the links today. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you very um, much. On Saturday, I'm doing an episode. It's going to go to YouTube called the Proto Scythian Origins. Um, your episode, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to make it ready. And then I think that episode I'm going to put up on the third. So it should be ready to go onto YouTube on the third. And I'll probably upload it on a Saturday morning. So I'm going to go ahead. I'll start working on what we've recorded. And this piece that we've done so far, that's going to be all one episode. Okay. So, Thank you very much. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It should be ready by the third for it sure. It was my pleasure to talk with you. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, have a good day. Thank you. Goodbye. And to my subscribers, firstly, thank you all for watching and for really enjoying this episode. And secondly, I want to encourage you all check out the links below in the video description. It's going to take you to a variety of sources to where you can really dive in and enjoy the work that Dr. Revez is doing to help me and you better understand the subjects that we all love. Dr. Revez, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. And ladies and gentlemen, have an excellent night. And thank you so much for watching. Thank you.